Are we ready to go? All right, I hope you are. Well, you don't sound super motivated, so I want to motivate you. I bet you are more motivated than you verbally responded, but John asked me to come to be the motivational speaker. So I am a pastor. I'm not a motivational speaker. I don't play one on television, um, but I do want to motivate you from the Bible tonight as a Christian pastor. And so what we're going to do in this opening session is get good and motivated biblically, good and motivated to learn about our triune God to hopefully set the stage for everything else we do. The Q&A tonight, sessions tomorrow. Let's get biblically motivated. I hope with, with each step of the way, you get closer and closer to the edge of your seats so that we're more and more motivated to learn about the most important topic we could ever learn about. Perhaps you've heard it said, I'm not sure, but there is a famous quotation from Augustine, and he said this, if you try to comprehend the Trinity, if you try to comprehend the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. But if you deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. If you deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. That tells us two things. That tells us that the doctrine of the Trinity, the teaching about the Trinity, the triune God, it tells us that it's a very important doctrine, vitally important. It also tells us, if Augustine's true, and I think he is, it also tells us that it's not altogether easy to understand. And so I think we need to get good and motivated to understand an important doctrine and also maybe a challenging doctrine. So I hope we're here to help this weekend. I hope we're ready to be good and motivated. So I have a top 10 list tonight. Uh, I'm used to doing verse by verse like Pastor John does. I'm used to saying open your Bibles to a certain place in your Bible and you pretty much stay there. I get nervous when I look around seeing closed Bibles. So let me just tell you the first passage and that's Psalm 48, Psalm 48, but we're only going to be in Psalm 48 for about approximately 6.5 seconds. So just a fair warning, this isn't my normal style, but I'm going to talk as, about as fast as I can sometimes because we're going to cover a lot of texts from Psalms to Deuteronomy to First Chronicles to Job to Romans all over the place. And so if you can't find all the passages in time, it's fine. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to slow down unless we're here tomorrow, uh, still during session number one. But I do have 10 motivators for learning about our triune God. That will be the outline for this session. 10 motivators or 10 motivations for learning about the Trinity, our triune God. We're going to start in Psalm 48, but then it's going to go really, really fast. Motivation number one, if we want to get good and motivated to learn about God, motivation number one is there is nothing greater. There is nothing greater. There is no one greater. There is nothing greater in all of the world than God. Talk about motivating. Think about all the great things in life. Think about all the good things in life. There are great meals. There are great experiences. There are great people as far as events are concerned. We even have the Great Wall. We have the Great War. We have the Great Depression. We have the Great Lakes which is where my kids want to go on vacation this summer, to the Great Lakes. We've never been. Did you know that Lake Superior, largest freshwater lake in the world, I think we're kind of close to it too, where we are tonight, fairly close. Did you know the Empire State Building, that if it were submerged into Lake Superior, there's only one thing you would see, the antenna at the top. It's a great lake. Well, I'm just talking about vacation now. There's so many great things, in other words, whether they're great lakes or great people, great relationships, great books, but they're ridiculous, ridiculous in comparison to God, the greatest one, the greatest being, the greatest reality, none other than God himself. We all could be somewhere else tonight doing great things. But there's nothing greater than God that motivates me to want to know about God, that motivates me as a preacher to do all I can to help you to see God is great. Listen to this, Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Psalm 96, verse 4. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. 1 Chronicles 16.25, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above 
all gods. And if God is great, we should expect that He does great things. He does the greatest things. Psalm 86.10, For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Job 5, 8 and 9, But as for me, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Isaiah 40, verse 28, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unscrutable. What a word. It's no wonder the Apostle Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Answer, no one. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Answer, no one. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Great job. Amen. I didn't know I was preaching at a Baptist church tonight, but I love it when Bible churches, whether it's Omaha Bible Church or your Bible church, we kind of channel our inner Baptist. I don't think we're supposed to say channel from the pulpit, but anyway. There's no greater topic. There's no greater being. There's absolutely nothing greater. And we could go on with more and more great texts, but I will stop for the sake of time. That gets my attention. I hope it gets your attention. That motivates me to say, tell me more. I need to know more about this great God who does great things. Motivation number two, getting us ready to learn more. Motivation number two for learning about the Trinity, our triune God, who always has been God, always will be God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great triune God. Number two, He is holy. He is holy. H-O-L-Y. As countless saints have been boasting in song for many, many years, the world over. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And it's for good reason that we sing a hymn like that because it's imitating praise that is literally heavenly. That's how, that's how the angelic beings sing in heaven. They might not sing that exact hymn, but they sing that kind of song. They acknowledge God's holiness. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8 says, And the four living creatures, the angelic beings, in Revelation 4, 8, each one of them, having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And that text obviously has the angels saying, Holy, 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 not just three times. It does say they don't cease to say that. It's just what they do. Holy, holy, holy. Why would they say it? Well, because it's true. But my question for you right now is, but what does it mean? What does it mean for God to be holy? For a long time in my Christian life, it's just one of those words. Uh, and I thought, well, it's good. I know that, but I don't really know what it means. And, and then maybe I hear someone say, well, that means sinless. Eh, that's not bad. I mean, it's true. He's sinless, but actually the word doesn't mean sinless. Because he's holy, he is sinless, all that's true. But, but essentially, that's not what it means. Holy, what does it mean? It means, well, someone might say it means set apart. That's, we're getting warmer. That's good. It does mean set apart. But maybe if I can be a little provocative to get you to think about this, it means different. God is different. God is distinct. Uh, to use a word to really be provocative, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I'm going to use this word. It means strange. God is strange. Now, it doesn't sound very good for a hymn, does it? Strange, strange, strange is the Lord God Almighty. doesn't really have a ring to it. But, but I want you to always remember, it's not just this kind of strange, ethereal church word. We're, we're singing different, different, different. 
We're seeing distinct, 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 we're singing. He's not like any of the gods that people make with their human imaginations or their hands. He's not like us. He's not like his creation. He's different, different, different. And so we, when we sing the song, which is a great song, let's just remember that we're talking about someone who, who is who's categorically different. And in that sense, I mean strange. Again, no disrespect meant whatsoever, but shock value included. In other words, there's no one like him. There's no one like God. In other words, he's extraordinary. In other words, he's not one in a million. He's the triune God, the Holy One. No small thing. No wonder we say there's no greater topic. Holy, holy, holy. He's holy like nothing else is holy. Those angels that sing that, I would call them holy. Read about it. They're strange. <laughs> different. Different than Hallmark portrays them, that's for sure. That, that's different, we say, when we're trying to be respectful. Those are holy angels. They're different. But God is holy, holy, holy. And we say it day and night because he's altogether different from everything and anyone else. I'll never think about that way the same way ever again in my life, having considered it like we have just now. In fact, God is so different. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Something interesting is when theologians are trying to be careful, and remember, as R.C. Sproul says, everyone is a theologian. Uh, we're either bad at it, good at it, or trying to get better at it, or somewhere in the middle. But as we think about God and we study God, careful theologians who've gone before us and who are living now and hopefully will come after us, they realize since God is holy, that our human language at its best is accommodating. Even the language that God has given us, He's given us language. Even the scriptural language, which is definitely good, I, I, I would go to the wall for it, is accommodating language because we have God who's the creator and he's communicating to us the creatures. He's accommodating. If you want to use a, well, here's a helpful quotation from one theologian. Let's not forget that whatever words are used of God, even scriptural words, this is God we have in view, infinite and eternal, immutable or unchanging and everlasting. Language by, is by definition, fancy word but important, analogical in every way. I don't know about you, but I don't use that word very often. Analogical, just think analogy. It's not exactly the same. It, it's trying to help you understand something. Well, God's language that he uses even scripture language and that's a quotation from someone who believes the bible is inerrant infallible and inspired you know what god even in human language at its best it's analogically speaking it's like it but we we, we don't know god exactly as he is because god is holy and we're going to talk more about that in the q a's and throughout the sessions but that really is is something that gets my attention holy he's probably even holier than we realize well, let's move on to a third motivator. I think we'll come back to something similar to that. But now, number three, motivation for learning about the Trinity, and that is this. The great commandment requires it. The great commandment requires it. What's the great commandment? Anybody know? Starts with an L. Love God. That's what it is. The great commandment, you might call it the greatest commandment or the great commandment, both would be right, is love God. Well, how can we love God if we don't know who He is? We actually can't love God if we don't know who He is. The great commandment assumes that we're not a bunch of idolaters. The great commandment assumes that we know something that's true about God. And now I'm getting ahead of myself. Matthew 22 is an important text. And I'm going to read Matthew 22. You can look at it if you'd like. We'll hear from Jesus about the great commandment. I would encourage you to have that text. And then also the text that Jesus has in mind, and the person he's talking to has in mind, is Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll also go there. I'm slowing down a little bit, but I'll speed up later, I promise. The great commandment, the great commandment, Matthew chapter 22, we have Jesus here being questioned. Verse 36, it reads, Teacher, this is Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love 
the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your, I'm going to emphasize this for, for right now, all your mind, so mind is included, this is the great and foremost commandment. And Jesus has in mind Deuteronomy chapter 6. And his Jewish questioner has in mind Deuteronomy chapter 6 because everyone has, in the Jewish context, Deuteronomy chapter 6 in mind. It's what you learn before you understand things in that world in the first century and before and after. If you're a Jewish person, you learn Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And so we want to look at that, but I first wanted to hear it from Jesus. And it's not always worded exactly the same way. Why would that be? Well, because he's talking, he, he, he's, he's, he's being all-inclusive. You, you love God with all of your being. You love God with all of your faculties, heart, soul, mind, strength, might, power, intellect, all that you are. That's why people have said all of your faculties. You, you love God. But we do need to remember, maybe especially in 21st century pop evangelicalism America, it includes our minds. We have, to, we have to think about God and who He is in order to love God appropriately. It includes our minds. The great commandment assumes that we know something that's true about God, like that He's the one and only eternal God who always has been God, always will be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 6.4 is, is, is quite the text. How about Deuteronomy 6.4? It's called the Shema or the Shema, however you'd like to say it, coming from the first word. Hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one there's only one God. Our Lord is one. You, verse 5 says, you shall. Here, here's the implication. This is logic. If there's only one God, how about verse 5? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, all of your faculties. Mind is assumed there as Jesus doesn't assume it in his text. Please notice the, the logic of it is amazing. There's only one God, so you don't divide your love. If there were two gods, it should be a 50-50 split, provided they're equal in power, authority, wisdom. It should be 50-50, or accordingly, based upon which one's better than the other. Think about it. If there are 330,000 gods, as some religions would say, then you divide your devotion, your love, your allegiance, your affection, 330,000 different ways. Have fun with that. But, but, but the logic is, is, is wonderful. There's only one God. And therefore, your devotion to, is to Him and to Him alone. Treat Him and Him alone like He's God. Wait for it. Why? Because there's only one God and He's Him. It's wonderful. It's great. And if God is triune, it should influence the way we love Him. We're seeing the one part right here we'll see the three part in time but if he's triune you shouldn't love him like a unitarian you shouldn't love him like a tritheist you shouldn't love him like a pantheist you shouldn't love him in any other way other than to love him as he is a triune god hmm. ready for the next motivation i hope you are because i'm out of notes number four Motivation for learning number four, worship, this is related, worship requires true knowledge. Let's be motivated to study the person of God because worshiping Him requires true knowledge. And we're going to see this in John chapter 4 when we see Jesus talking about worship. Worshiping this God requires true knowledge. Now, singing emotional songs per se doesn't require knowledge. But then again, just singing emotional songs, nothing wrong with emotion, nothing wrong with emotional songs, but merely singing, singing emotional songs is not worship. Worship has to do, yes, including our minds. We're talking about somebody who's worthy, and how would you know that they're worthy unless you know that they're worthy? So if God is great, and He's the one and only God, then all of a sudden we see His worthiness, that old English word actually, I think, has some good traction for our minds. His, your, your, his worthship. So we worship him because of his worthship. Okay, so if we're going to worship God, 
we have to worship God truly in a way that he'll be pleased with in accordance with who he actually truly, genuinely, legitimately is. In John chapter 4, we, we, we learn something about true worship. And uh, Jesus, I, you know, Jesus does everything perfectly. I think he's perfectly loving the Samaritan woman, but this might be what we would call tough love. Okay, so in verse 22 in chapter 4, go ahead and look at this important text. You worship, Jesus says, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. John 4, 22. You worship, you Samaritans, what you do not know. Now, is that a compliment or an insult? It's an insult. It's a perfectly sanctified insult, okay? No ill motives, because it's Jesus. You, you, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. There's another word for that. It starts with I. It's called idolatry. He's not complimenting her. I think he's being nice to her. I think he's loving her, but he's not, being, he, he's not complimenting her. You worship what you don't know. We, as in the Jews, we worship what we know. I'm going to put my finger there just for a moment. Well, let's just keep reading a little bit. For salvation is from the Jews. Now, you know, and I know that Jesus is not altogether pleased with the Jewish people by and large, but he's just dealing with the matter of texts. He's dealing with the matter of the Jews affirm all of the Bible to be true and the Samaritans don't. And so, regardless of motive, the Samaritans, even if they might have good motives, they're already disqualified from offering God true worship because they're not worshiping in truth. The Jews, even if they're not all individually worshiping him, at least they have the right book to know the right one true God. I think that's what's going on there, generally speaking. And if your pastor has said something else, he's certainly right. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> you get the idea. Verse, verse 23 says, but an hour is coming. And now is, this has to do with Jesus and what he's about to do. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's really what I want to emphasize right now. The spirit part has to do, I think, with the temple going away because Jesus is the temple, the ultimate temple. I think that's what's going on there. The Jews and the Samaritans debate about which temple to go to. So in spirit and truth, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And really, I was just trying to get us to that last statement there, but I didn't want to ignore the context. You have to worship God if you're genuinely going to worship God in spirit and truth, okay? Truth has to be involved. So I can't just say, well, I'm just going to worship God and it's just an emotional experience for me. Apart from knowing who God is, according to his revelation, which is worshiping God in truth. It's in truth. I think a, you don't need to go there because I'm going to go really quick, but I think a complimentary text, but a, in a negative sense, is Romans 125. Romans 125 says, For they, unbelievers, exchanged the truth, let's pick up on that, of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So if you don't have the truth, in other words, and you exchange the truth for something that's not the truth, you might worship, but your worship isn't real worship. So if we don't know who God is, as he's revealed himself, the one eternal God is existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I don't think we can actually worship. And I think we should base that upon good authority, the authority of Jesus. If we don't have truth, we don't have genuine worship. John Calvin, whether you're a fan or a foe, I think is onto something when he said, apart from the knowledge of God as Trinity, only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. I think that's probably a good insight. The Samaritans said God. They use God talk a lot. They use some of the Bible a lot. We have to know which God we're talking about according to the actual Bible. Okay, let's move on to number five, another motivation for us for learning about our triune God, the triune God. Number five, he can be known. He can be known. And e e even the fact that we're called to love him tells us something about, well, if we couldn't know anything about him, then how could we love him? So it assumes that, it assumes our mind is involved. 
Uh, but when we don't love God, it's a problem in the Bible. You guys want the bad news or the first? You want the, you want the negative side or the positive side first? Positive? Okay, here's the positive. Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God delights, and he's talking about his people, when they have the knowledge of him. That pleases God. That delights God when they have the true knowledge. Oh, I know there are Bible verses that say knowledge makes people arrogant. But apart from any knowledge, it makes you an idolater. So it might be dangerous, but it's vital. God is pleased when his people have an appropriate knowledge. That's the positive news of Hosea 6.6. But Hosea 4.1 previously gives the negative. Hosea 4.1, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. So this is God not delighting. This is God opposing. This is different from Hosea 6.6. This is Hosea 4.1. The Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. And he says this, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. God is against the people when there are certain things lacking, one of them being knowledge. You gotta know who I am, and when you do, God says, I'm delighted. But when you don't, I have a case against you. This is why Paul prays in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. He's praying for Christians. How should we pray for one another? A lot of different ways. But how about this? The way the, the Apostle Paul prays for the Colossian believers when he says that they would be bearing fruit in every good work in, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what he's praying for them. He's praying, no doubt he's praying for their spiritual growth. Part of spiritual growth is knowing more about God. Knowing about God. 2 Peter chapter 1, and then we'll move on to the next one. But 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Get this. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. And of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Knowledge, knowledge. We've got to know things about God. God delights when we know things that are true about him. That motivates me to want to understand the one true and living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want God to be delighted. I want God to be honored. He's got to be known. He must be known. He can be known. He can be known truly. What a blessing it is to know him truly. But before we move on, back to the careful theologians thing, learning from those who've gone before us. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. Careful theologians have said things like this. We can know God truly according to the Bible. We need to know God truly according to the Bible but that doesn't mean that we can know God comprehensively. It doesn't mean we can know God the way God knows himself because he's the infinite, all-wise, all-knowing, eternal one, and we're creatures. We're in, we're in a different category. And so I don't... Did you like it when I quoted Calvin earlier or not? I'm not going to ask. I don't want to know. In a famous quote from John Calvin, the other one wasn't famous, and I'm going to use my, my, my second. I get two Calvin quotes per message, I was told. Oh, I, nobody, nobody told me that. But I do have at least one more. This, is, this actually is a famous quotation from him. Um, and I think friend and foe of Calvin like this quotation if they're trying to think about the Trinity. That when God speaks to us about himself, he uses baby talk. Another important word we use in theology, we use the word condescension. And we don't mean like I'm insulting you and I, I'm speaking condescendingly. No, but to condescend, he comes down to our level because he cares and he speaks in a way that we can understand because otherwise, since we're not God, we could never understand God the way he understands himself. And so it's important that we know that. It's accommodated language. 
You want, you want more like lofty theological words? I talked to some of you here tonight when you came in, and it was great meeting lots of you. And uh, some of you kind of acted like you came here just for the big theological words. So I want to please you. <laughs> I, I, I say at Omaha Bible Church, some of you just come for the theology words. But I don't really mean that, but it lets me introduce new concepts and ideas. So in, in theology, sometimes theologians say, and they're thinking about this, they say there's two kinds of knowledge. When we're talking about Trinitarianism, they say there's archetypal knowledge. And boys and girls, you get extra dessert if you can remember that and tell your mom and dad what it means. You can bill me, moms and dads. Archetypal knowledge, knowledge that God would have of himself. I, it might not be right, but I think he's the architect. Archetypal knowledge, knowledge that only God possesses. And then there's creaturely knowledge. They call it ectypal knowledge. And remember, God is holy. He's different. We're created. He's the creator. Archetypal knowledge. Only his knowledge. And then there's ectypal knowledge. And you might be thinking, why do we need to learn all this kind of stuff? Well, one reason we need to learn about these categories and nuances and big words sometimes that aren't actual Bible words is because the Bible has so much good and right and true data and we know it's not contradictory, and we've got to sort it out so we can understand all of the data that's not contradictory in a way that makes sense. Well, God knows. Well, I know too. Both are taught in the Bible. But God is different than we are because he's the creator. He knows in ways that we don't know. So we make up words sometimes, or we borrow them from other places, and we say maybe there's two different kinds of knowledge. So it's actually friendly and helpful. So the Bible's not just theological alphabet soup. Categories actually matter. Okay, number, th number, number three. Okay, no number six, sixth motivation. And we're going to move this along. The next motivation for learning about the Trinity, the triune God, the Christian God, and that is to err is human. To err is human. And I'm not going to quote the rest of that famous quotation. I just want to focus on the negative there for a second. As the hymn writer says, and I don't have any Bible verses for this one. I guess I could come up with some because error is exposed in the Bible. But since there are no errors in the Bible, I don't have any Bible verses to prove my point. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to put any errant Bible verses here. I guess I could take it from the book of 2 Nephi or some other kind of book. <laughs> we need to be motivated because humans get things wrong. To err is, in fact, human. As the hymn writer says prone to wonder lord i feel it that's robert robinson we sing that song at omaha bible church i have a love-hate relationship with that song it, it rings true with me prone to wonder lord i feel it but i have a hate relationship with that song because the one who said prone to wonder lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love here's my heart oh take and seal it seal it for thy courts above did in fact wonder, and by the end of his life, from all accounts I can figure out, denied the doctrine of the Trinity. That's troubling. That upsets me. We are prone to wonder. To err is human. And we do have examples of false teachers in the Bible, so I could include verses, but I chose not to. We could categorize some of these errors, and this is a little bit of a preview for other sessions, but maybe let's think about some, if to err is human when it comes to the Trinity, let's talk about some of the different kinds of errors in Trinitarianism. Think with me about the mistakes that people make. Let, let's start by talking about, I'm going to call them earnest mistakes, mistakes I've made, mistakes probably some of, the, the, of you in this room have made, and I'm not trying to be insulting, but they are mistakes. They're uh, sincere mistakes and we say maybe as a new christian or somebody who hasn't really thought about these things we say oh god i've got it figured out he's like an egg well thank you for trying we have parting gifts <laughs> god is not like an egg um, god is not like an egg god's not made up of parts shell yolk white and by the way, the white is not the egg. It's part of the egg. It's not a good illustration. We'll have an altar call afterward if you need to confess your sins. <laughs> we don't have God in three parts. That's actually an ancient heresy. 
there's another kind of category, and let's call them opponents of Christianity. So we have Christians, and I've made the egg kind of mistake before. We could do water, steam, ice, another kind of heresy. We could do this piece of the cherry pie, this piece of the cherry pie, but another ancient heresy. So just tap out, okay? <laughs> God is holy. Stop, okay? <laughs> another one would be opponents of Christianity. Let's, let's use Islam. Let's talk about Muslims, the, the Quran. Anybody here read the Quran from cover to cover? I did because I wanted to be able to say that I did. And in the Quran, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is presented as, well, first of all, they deny the Trinity, okay? So they're anti-Trinitarian, Muslims are. But I've gotten this from reading the Quran with my own two eyes, and I've had a lengthy meeting with a Muslim in Omaha, Nebraska, and he gave me the same thing. According to Islam, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity has Father, has three gods, first of all, which is not the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And get this, Father, Son, and Mary. Never mind the fact that no Christian ever on planet Earth, even the most devout Mariolatrous person, has never, ever, ever said the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is Father, Son, and Mary. That doesn't bode well for the inerrancy of the Quran. So the Quran is incorrect. It is a, a blatant error in the Quran because Christians have never believed that. But if you are the leader of the movement and you don't understand the language and you don't understand what happens in the different churches you happen to visit and you see paintings of Mary and a baby and you don't really understand the dove, it is the kind of errant conclusion you would come to. So we can understand it. So that's, a, that's another kind of error. People who oppose the doctrine of the Trinity, even if they don't understand it, they oppose it. Um, there's another kind of category of error. We'll just call them, just let's call them heretics. And heretics aren't just people we don't like. <laughs> they're people who are, not, they're within our tradition. They're, they're in, within Christianity, but they've said hugely wrong things. Like the kind of things that might keep you out of heaven. Okay, and people like Arius, Arianism, Arius, Sibelius, we might talk about some of those heretics in other sessions, but there are heretics, and then there's one final category that I'm going to offer, and that would be Christians, who might be well-meaning, but they maybe don't know much about history, uh, maybe sometimes we call them Biblicists, and they say, well, I, I don't need to pay attention to anything before, the Holy Spirit, how he's worked before, I'm just going to reinvent the wheel, and usually when you reinvent the wheel, it turns out what shape? It turns out square, okay? So there are professing Christians who don't know about the ancient heresies, creeds, and confessions, and they say, well, I just have my Bible, and so, and then before you know it, they start teaching heresy themselves. They start teaching heresies like this, that the Son, that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. Well, evangelicals today say that kind of stuff. That's an ancient heresy, okay? So today, Bruce Ware teaches that today, Wayne Grudem teaches a form of that. Today, Owen Strand teaches a form of that. Those are Arian-like heresies. To say that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father is Arianism. So I hope I just woke you up, motivated you. There, to err is human, and we have professors in our seminaries teaching heresies. You better know what you believe about things, folks. More about that later. Let's move on to number seven because it's related. Number seven, next motivation for learning about Trinitarianism is this. Contending assumes it. Contending assumes it. Jude 3. You know the text if you've been a Christian longer than about five weeks. Jude 3 talks about contending for the faith. It says in Jude 3, Jude 1, 3, because there's only one chapter, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend. It means struggle. It means fight. Hopefully you're not contentious, but we're called to contend. All Christians are called to struggle, to fight, to contend for, let's keep reading, to struggle, to contend earnestly, not contentiously, but notice, for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. If you don't know what the faith is, or the faith if you prefer, I promise you this. 
you can't contend for it. If you don't know what's true about God, that there is one eternal God who always will be the eternal God who always has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then if you don't know that that's true and you don't understand it, then you can't contend for it. And so we need to understand a bit better if we're going to do our duty as Christians to earnestly contend. Do you know the faith well enough to contend for it? I hope so. And if not, you came to the right place, right conference. What do you say to Mormons who say they believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Oh, hey, brother, how you doing? Hey, sister. I hope not because it's not Trinitarian, but they say they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do you say to people who say, well, we believe in the Trinity at my church. We believe the Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the New Testament, and at Pentecost, He becomes the Holy Spirit. What do you say to that person? That's classic heresy. What do you say to evangelicals who say ultimate glory belongs to the Father alone? That's heresy. That's what Bruce Ware teaches. So we need to keep these things in mind. We need to know about these things. Bruce Ware says this, that the Father stands above the Son, not in the incarnation, but before the incarnation. The Father stands above the Son and is, and I quote, supreme within the Godhead. And you might not know this. Again, you came to the right conference regardless. That's Arianism. Christians have never believed that. Today, we have what Matthew Barrett calls Trinity drift, and people don't know the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith. And we hear the Father is supreme within the Godhead before the Incarnation. And don't have red lights going off? People have bled and suffered and died to say, no, he's very God of very God, begotten, not made. And we're going to talk about that and get into more of the details. We need to be aware of these things. And again, it might sound mean-spirited, and I don't mean to sound mean-spirited, but we're called to contend for the faith. And the biggest threat to Christianity has never been on the outside. It's always been on the inside. And every heretic who's ever walked the earth, I think it's fair to say, has had their Bible verses. Discipleship, next one, next motivation. We're going to do 10 of these, and I'm going to go fast. Number eight, discipleship demands it. Discipleship demands it, that we know something about the triune God. Matthew 28 is the classic text. It'll probably come up again and again and again this weekend where we learn about discipleship in its infancy. But it does say, I'm quoting Jesus, you know the text, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There it is. All on on the same level. Equality. Teaching them, teaching disciples... To observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, think about this. Kind of of ridiculously. Not ridiculously, but very basically. A a person is a new disciple, and we're going to baptize them. And we're going to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Could you explain to them why? I think you should be able to. I think you can. I don't think you have to have a PhD in anything to be able to explain it. Why are you, bap- are you baptizing me in the name of the three gods of Christianity? Are you baptizing me in the name of the God who starts out as Father, becomes Son, and then becomes Spirit? Are you baptizing me in the name of the Father who's the ultimate deity and then the Son is a lesser? And then- what, what does this mean? Discipleship says we're to teach them. And the first thing that happens to them, right? The first thing that happens to them, they get baptized in the name of the triune God. It just begs the question, what are you going to say to them about that? I think all of us should be able to give an answer. And we could be an immature Christian and give a good answer. We certainly can. But what can you teach people that you don't know? teaching them to observe. Well, if you don't know something, you can't teach it. I mean, I'm a good faker. (sighs) But I'm not a good faker at teaching. Because if I don't know something, I can't teach it. I can raise my voice. (laughs) I can be confusing. 
I can't teach something that I don't understand. And so let's not comprehend the Trinity. We've learned something tonight. But understand, according to God's revelation, well enough to be able to explain. Deuteronomy 6.4, we won't take the time to go back there, but even back to that text we quoted, I quoted earlier, we looked at earlier, that even brings that reality of telling to the family. Teach this to your children. When you go here and when you go here and when you go here, teach your children about the one true and living God. It's even basic for children. We should be able to. Okay, more about discipling on Saturday, at least in my session, because I'm going to focus on being discipled in Trinitarianism. But let's do number 9 and 10. I see you moving closer to the edge of your seat, so I think I'm being successful as a motivating pastor, not a motivational speaker. Motivation number 9, salvation is Trinitarian. Salvation is Trinitarian. So not only is it the greatest topic about the Holy God, the one true and living God, our salvation is Trinitarian. And I'm quite certain that Pastor Mike is actually going to deal with this whole passage. And so I'm going to do my best now to steal all of his thunder. I'm not going to do that. But in Ephesians chapter 1, we learned that salvation is Trinitarian. And so I'll just make reference to it because I think he's going to deal with it in some detail. But it's what theologians call the pactum, the pactum salutis. The covenant of redemption. The before time begins agreement between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to provide redemption. What a grand reality that before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 says, there is this plan, there is this decree to save sinners. But it is most definitely a triune plan, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each one is emphasized in different ways, but they're obviously working together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3 of Ephesians 1. There we have God the Father. Verse 4, He the Father chose us in Him in the Son before the foundation of the world. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the Son, forgiveness of our trespasses. If we then move on and drop down to verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And it goes on to talk about wonderful things regarding redemption. We'll save that for later for the sake of time. We could go to Romans 8 as well. I just want to remind you that salvation, as you've experienced it, if we went to Romans 8, your security, your eternal assurance and security that's irreversible is Trinitarian with fingerprints, if you will, sealed by the Spirit. Oh, how great our great God is to provide such a redemption. Let's do number 10. Finally, last motivation that we'll do in this session for learning about Trinitarianism, but I would like to personalize it. We are learning about Trinitarianism, but we're also learning about our Trinitarian God. One God, eternally existing, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number 10, He is mysterious. He is mysterious. There are Bible texts that talk about the mysteries of God, but I'll just end it on this. Oh, let, me, let me add one qualifier. We, when Christians speak of mystery, we, we don't mean... You know, but there's something about it that leaves our mouth open. There's something about it we don't comprehend. There's something about it that's wonderful. There's something about it that's frightening. There's something about it that having done as much work as we can, we roll our sleeves up, we get the books out, we get the apps open. We dig in, we try to learn, we try to learn from other teachers, but then here's what we do. We push our chair away from the desk. And we say, oh, behold the wondrous mystery. That's what we say. So it's not a cop-out when Christians talk about mystery. They shouldn't be anyway. At least not, that's not the way the old writers talked. Maybe today you, learn, you talk to somebody and they say, well, you know what, we just can't know. And you're talking, to them about, you're talking to them about things that are clear in the Bible. And you're like, yeah, but we actually can know. It's a cop-out. But when you read old Christian writers, they don't mean it as a cop-out. They mean it as a, you're a creature. 
and you're talking about the Creator. Mystery is a good category in the Reformation tradition. Probably a good category that we should recover. One person uh, that I really admire is Louis Burkhoff, someone who is a, a good theologian, worked really hard, wasn't a perfect man, but ended well. Sometimes it's good to read those who are not alive anymore so that we know they're, they're ended, uh, and they ended well. I like his systematic theology a lot and his explanation of things Trinitarian. And I have two helpful quotes from him. And I think Burkhoff understood a lot. The Trinity is a mystery far beyond our comprehension. Thank you, Lord, for that good quote. <laughs> Burkhoff also says, the church confesses the Trinity to be a mystery beyond the comprehension of man. That's helpful. It's very helpful. Creator, creature, we should expect a mystery because we're not above the line. We're below the line. We can know things about the one who is above the line. If everything, if the line is here, theologians like to do this. Creator, creature, he's condescended so that we can know some things, but we have to say, mysterious. I like the lyric in the song. It's talking about the incarnation, I know, but I'm going to borrow it to end with. Here's what I want to say to you regarding the rest of the conference as we think about our triune God. I want to say to you, come, behold the wondrous mystery. Let's do that together but let's pray now. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for these men and women and boys and girls, and thank you for the opportunity that we have to think about things that will matter forever, things that are important, things that are beyond our pay grade, so to speak, beyond our comprehension. But we're thankful to know that you've loved us and you've revealed yourself to us so uniquely in the Bible, so uniquely in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit. We're thankful that we're not the first Christians, that the Holy Spirit has been working in the life of the church all along, and so we're able to learn from others who are gifted to teach and to help us. Lord, help us even now as we consider things that are important, that are significant, and should compel us to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.